theologians and thinkers have struggled with the seemingly facile yet elusive subject of faith. Frederick Scalamacher, the German New Orthodox theologian, defined faith as a feeling of dependence. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian, viewed faith as a leap in the dark. And Emil Brunner saw faith as a personal encounter with the living Christ. Varying ideas about what faith truly is. And yet, the New Testament, and particularly Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, gives us a window into understanding the very heart of faith. Because the writer of Hebrews, in memorable fashion, says that faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. For the writer of Hebrews, faith essentially is assurance and conviction in future spiritual realities. What the writer does in chapter 11 is that he outlines this subject of faith. And he draws upon great examples from the Old Testament, examples of faith, beginning with Abel and Enoch and Noah as the earliest examples of people who put their trust in God, who believed in God, who relied upon God. He made it very clear in verses 1 to 7 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But then in verses 8 to 22, he comes to the greatest example of faith in the Old Testament, that of Abraham. Abraham is the father of believers. This is a man whose faith pleased God so that on three specific occasions in the Old Testament or in the Scriptures, he is viewed as a man who is a friend of God. We see this in Second Chronicles 20 verse 7. In Isaiah 4 verse 8, or 41 verse 8, and James 2 23, three times the only person referred to in Scripture three times as a friend of God because of his tremendous faith in God. So great is Abraham and his example of faith that the writer affords him great space in chapter 11 in dealing with his faith and the faith that was found in his family. In verses 8 to 10, he begins with Abraham's faith. And in verses 11 to 12, he places a spotlight on Sarah's faith. And then there's a digression to look at the faith of the patriarchs in verses 13 to 16. And then he returns to Abraham's faith in verses 17 to 20 and concludes this narrative of Abraham in verses 20 to 22 with the faith of the patriarchs Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. My intent is to look then at this passage and seek to glean from it the characteristics, at least the salient important characteristics of Abraham's faith. And I want to make three observations regarding the faith of Abraham and that which was found in his family. First of all, 
Abraham's faith, which pleased God, the faith of which God approves, is a faith that manifests itself first and foremost in radical obedience to God. We're going to examine that. Secondly, his faith, the faith that pleases God, the faith of which God approves, is the faith that looks forward in confidence to the future. Third, the faith of Abraham and the, first, the faith that pleases God and which draws divine approval is that which is characterized by persistent reliance upon the promises of God. And these then are the themes that I want to deal with regarding the faith of Abraham. First, we learn from this passage that God-pleasing faith manifests itself in radical obedience to God. Take a look at verse 8 of our passage. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. I want you to observe that Abraham was God's elect. He was chosen by God out of all the peoples at that time in the Middle East, of all the people in Mesopotamia, and of all his family members, the Lord called one man, Abraham. The Lord called him to become the father of Israel and the progenitor, the ancestor of none else than our Lord Jesus Christ. This divine call to Abraham was not a reward for service rendered. Rather, it was an act of grace because we need to understand that Abraham came from Ur of the, Meth, of, of the Chaldeans and he was a pagan. He worshipped idols. In fact, he worshipped the idol called sin. And by the way, when I say sin, I'm not just talking about disobedience and rebellion. The, the God that he worshipped was actually called sin. I think it was appropriate that the God is called sin, but he was a pagan. That's the point I'm trying to make. So it was not because God was rewarding him for his faithfulness. In fact, he was a very unfaithful man. He was a sinner, and he was an idolater. But God called him out of grace. And the call of God on Abraham's life, we must understand, was a summon to exclusive allegiance. The Lord called Abraham, one writer says, in a series of separations. First of all, the Lord called him to separate from his country, from his nation. We see this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Abraham was called to, live, to leave Ur, which was located on the Euphrates River, in what is now known as Tel el Mukayar, which is in southern Iraq or Mesopotamia in olden days. Today, as Ronald Youngblood reminds us, Ur is a nondescript, an unimportant place, a little dot in the Middle East. It is not, Youngblood says that Ur is just a camel stop in the desert. Many years ago, a visitor was passing through and he stopped off 
at a little motel. You would have to call it a flea bag motel in Or. And he was so disgusted with the place that in the morning when he got up, he wrote before he left in the register, in the guest register of the hotel, no wonder Abraham left this place. And a few days or a few months after, another traveler came there and he was also equally disgusted. And he wrote beneath what the first guy wrote, even Job would have. But this negative portrayal of Ur belies the fact that Ur in the time of Abraham was a tremendous place. In 1922, a British expeditionary team found a royal grave in Ur. In it, it was littered with abundance of jewelry and gold. They even found a crown of one of the queens who reigned in Ur. And so young blood is correct. God did not call Abraham from a little dirty town in the Middle East. He called him from a very wealthy, prosperous, and sophisticated city. God says, get out of your country. Get out of this city. It was a call to separate not only from his nation, but to separate from his family. He was to leave his Sethite tribe and his father's house, that is, Terah's clan. You see, in those days, as Today, one's allegiance, one's security is to one's nation. One has a sense of rootedness in one's clan and one's family. You find true security in the structure, not only of the society, but in the structure of the family. And God was calling him not only to renounce his nation, but to renounce his family. Because he was calling him to exclusive allegiance. He had to uproot and detach himself not only from his nation but his religious practices, from his background, all of which gave him personal security. And it was a call to an inheritance, an inheritance that was promised. God was going to give him a name, a land, and a descendant, and blessing, and a seed. The text tells us in Hebrews 11, verse 8, that Abraham obeyed. And I want you to note that his obedience was immediate. In chapter 11, verse 8, it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. The grammar here is interesting and needs attention. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. But literally, the writer says, Abraham obeyed while he was being called. That is, in other words, as soon as he received the commandment to get out from his country and from his family, he packed up and left. It's an amazing thing. The Bible says that he went out not knowing where he was going. The commentator, William Lang talks about a conversation he had with another scholar, Stuart Babbage, in Australia. And he says that outside of Babbage's office were four pictures. And each of these pictures on the wall was a picture of the same stretch of desert. And so he 
Leng went to Babbage and he says, why do you have four pictures of the same desert hanging on the wall outside of your office? And Babbage says, these pictures are taken from Ur, the ancient city of Ur. Because if you look to the north or to the south or to the east or to the west, all you see is desert. When the Lord called Abraham to leave Ur, all that he saw before him was a vast and daunting expanse of desert. That is all that he had to go because God did not give him a destination. It is only as he traveled along that God revealed his destination, but he did not know where he was going. It's an amazing step of faith. Can you imagine him coming home and saying, Sarah, we are leaving? There's no real discussion. He doesn't go to the men of a city and say, well, let's weigh the pros and cons of following God's command. Or even call a psychologist and say, well, did God talk to me or did I talk to myself? He could have found many ways in which to ignore this command. But he acted in faith. You see, the obedience of Abraham, the outward obedience of Abraham, was the evidence of an inward faith. The reason he responded promptly to God, it is because of his faith in God. And the argument that we must understand is that the faith of which God approves manifests itself first in obedience to the command and to the word of God. But the second characteristic of faith, and that which preoccupies the section, is that God-pleasing faith, the faith of which God approves, looks forward with confidence to the future. This is actually, his statement is made, this point is made in verses 9 to 10 and verses 13 to 16. The writer says, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. When Abraham left Ur, and arrived in Canaan, the land that God had promised him, the Bible says that Abraham got there and lived like a foreigner, a stranger. He dwelt there like an alien resident, a temporal resident. In other words, he moved from, tent to, from place to place, living in a tent with his descendants, with, his, with the patriarchs. Stephen tells us, that apart from a burial plot in the land, Abraham owned nothing. He was transient, moving about every few days or weeks. He moved from one place to another in the land. He was a foreigner. Everything about him, his accent, his clothing, his values and his goals suggested that he was shaped by his relationship with God but not by the surrounding culture. So the question that the narrative in Genesis begs is why does Abraham live as a temporary resident in the land? Why does he live in tent? Why does he put down roots and build himself a stable house and raise a family in the land? Well, the secret to his transient nomadic way of life is explained in the passage. For the writer goes on, in verse 10, and he tells us why Abraham did not put down roots. For he waited for the city which has foundations, 
whose builder and maker is God. What happened to Abraham when he got into the land? As he traveled back and forth in the land, he came to realize by divine intuition that the promise of God to him included much more than real estate in Palestine. That the promise of a land speaks of a greater spiritual inheritance. And the Bible says that Abraham waited for a city. This term, wait, is that which means to look forward with expectation and with confidence. This verb, to wait, appears in the imperfect to signal continuous action. So he was waiting or he was looking with longing, with expectation for a city that has foundation. And describing the city as that which has foundation, of course, is the antithesis of living in tents because tents do not have foundation. But when he talks of a city with foundation, the writer is referring to a permanent, secure, and stable city. And this city with foundation is, of course, the heavenly Jerusalem, chapter 12, verse 22. The unshakable kingdom, chapter 12, verse 28. It is a city which is to come. In other words, he was looking for heaven. You know, there's a sense in which there's a correspondence between Abraham and Joshua. Because even though God had given to Israel the land of Canaan, when Joshua went into the land, they recognized that God had given them a greater land than Israel. It's the land of heaven. It is a city with foundation, a city that is permanent. And the reason this city is called a city with foundations is because God is the builder and maker. It is God who has prepared this place. Abraham was already a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem because of God's call upon his life. But now in the land, as he lived there, year after year, he kept on looking for a greater city, a city built by God, a city with foundations, stable, uh, unmovable, unshakable. You see, it is this notion of looking to a city that shows you that faith not only demonstrates itself in obedience, but faith is looking above and beyond to the greater heavenly city. And this kind of faith, a faith that is not tied to this world, that looks ahead, that anticipates the life to come, was also exhibited in the lives of his descendants. In verses 13 to 14 we read, these all died in faith, referring to Abraham's descendants, Jacob, Isaac and Jacob. And so he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar were assured of them and embraced and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For to those who say such things, declare plainly that they seek a homeland. What the writer is insisting on, that this forward-looking faith, a faith that is anchored in heaven, that looks for the city with foundation, was also seen in the lives of his children and grandchildren. The writer says that the patriarchs, Abraham, the Isaac, and Jacob, did not receive the fulfillment of God's promise. But they saw them afar off. They were looking into the future, and they saw the promises of God, and they were assured of them. And like Abraham, his descendants, by living in tents, we're also saying that they were strangers and pilgrims seeking 
intensely longing for a homeland. And the homeland for which they are seeking is the city with foundation in verse 10. It is described in verse 16 as the better, the heavenly country. And precisely because they were inspired by the heavenly homeland, the better country, they did not consider returning to their ancestral home. They didn't think of going back to Ur because they had a city that had a foundation. They had a homeland that was greater than anything else that they have ever possessed. And since their eyes were fixed on the better country and oriented towards God, God was not ashamed to be called their God because they trusted in Him and they longed for His city, for heaven itself where God dwells, just as much as they were not ashamed to own God and the life to come. God wasn't ashamed to identify himself with them. He was not ashamed to be called their God. In fact, he had prepared for them the city for which they long. This future-oriented faith, the faith that looks forward, crops up then in the patriarchs. And in verses 20 to 22, we see this, this, this notion of a forward-looking faith. For the writer tells us, that Isaac blessed his children concerning things to come. You see the future really of faith, the future aspect of faith. Or Jacob invoke blessing upon the children of Joseph. But blessing refers to future acts of kindness from God. And Joseph shows the, the future aspect of his faith when, when he, looking ahead, seeing that Israel would in fact inhabit the land, ordered them to take his bones out of Egypt when they left. Because he saw that one day they will inherit the land of Canaan. So there are two arguments that we have been pursuing. The genuine faith. The faith of which God approves is a faith that demonstrates itself in obedience. And secondly, it is a faith that transcends this world. It is anchored in the city which has foundation, the city of God himself. It is a future-oriented, forward-looking faith. But there's a third characteristic of faith, the faith that Abraham possessed. And it is this. This God-pleasing faith involves persistent reliance upon the promises of God. You see, if there is to be a faith by which we obey God and by which we look forward to the heavenly Jerusalem, the homeland, the city with foundation, whose maker and builder is God, that faith must be one which implicitly relies upon the promises of God. And that's the point that is made, first of all, in verses 11 to 12. It says, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, commentators differ over whether the sentence here refers to Sarah's faith or Abraham's faith. faith. I, I think that, that, that there is no material difference because Sarah here represents Abraham. The, the point of the verse is both of these people, both Sarah and Abraham, were impotent. She was barren. He was impotent. They were not able to have children. And yet they received strength to produce a seed. And so when Sarah was past the age of childbearing, she brought forth a son. That's the argument of the text. How did, how did these two people, how were they able to procreate, to produce a son? The Bible says, by faith. By faith. 
Sarah was 90 years old when she conceived. And Abraham was a young 100. I think that if any couple should think of giving up this idea of having children, it is these two. And one day, Abraham had his tent by the oaks of Mamre, according to Genesis 18. And the angel of the Lord comes to visit. And he tells Abraham that around this time next year, your wife Sarah is going to produce a son. Remember, she's 90. And he's 100. And Sarah is eavesdropping on the conversation. She's at the door of the tent and she hears this thing and she laughs. It's a laugh of incredulity, of unbelief. And it says essentially, shall I have this pleasure that is of bearing a child in my old age when my husband or my Lord, she says, is also old? And the angel of the Lord hears, is God himself. And he says to Sarah, why does Sarah laugh? And Sarah denied that she laughed. He said, no, you did laugh. And the angel of the Lord says, is there anything too hard for God? I want you to understand that Sarah and Abraham, like us, were not perfect in faith. They had their wobbles and their doubts. They had their ifs and their buts along the way. You see that, for example, in Genesis 16, when Sarah became impatient after waiting years and years for the promise to be fulfilled, eventually she got tired and she followed the practice of the, the ancient Near Eastern world. She resorted to surrogate motherhood. She takes her servant, Hagar, and gives her to Abraham and says, produce a child for us through Sarah, through Hagar. There were times there were lapses in their faith. But what you need to recognize is that even though their faith was not perfect, it was genuine. And as the years piled up, as time went by, the longer they waited, the greater their faith became. And why is it that Sarah trusted the Lord? The Bible says, the verse says, she trusted the Lord because she considered him who promised as faithful. While she followed her husband up and down Canaan, she learned some important lessons about God and none of them more important than that God is faithful. You must remember that when she went into the land, she went in as a little group. There were nations around her that were more powerful, had greater armies, who could simply snuff out Abraham at any time. He had a, a, a group of trained soldiers of 300, approximately 318. What could that do against surrounding armies in the hundreds of thousands? But God had protected her and preserved her. And even when Abraham imperiled their marriage, he was afraid of the Egyptian. He says, you know, if, if you go down to Egypt, they're going to kill me and take you because you're so beautiful. So when you go there, tell them that I am your brother. A half lie is a whole lie. 
She was indeed his half-sister. But the most important part he left out, she is his wife. And let's not get into the question about how people could marry close relatives at that time. Just let's realize that before the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Law. But he imperils Sarah. So she, 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 she went along with this ruse and she says, no, he's my brother. And the Pharaoh took her into his harem. She was defenseless. Her marriage was imperiled. The, uh, the covenant of grace, it seems, was now imperiled because of his action. And so the Lord intervened and plagued Pharaoh, so he had to release her unscathed, untouched. You see, it is God who protected her. She saw God's grace, God's protection, and she believed. She believed that because God said it, it doesn't matter how long she lived. If she lived a a thousand years, she would still be able to produce a son because God is faithful. It's important to marry people with whom you're spiritually compatible. Young men shouldn't just go try to find the most beautiful girl around to marry. They must marry women who are women of faith. And men ought to be men of faith. The guy you marry must be a man of faith. You must be united in spiritual things. And this was a couple. We talk much about Abraham's faith, but let's be very clear. His wife was a woman of faith. This reliance upon God, this notion of trusting in God, was evident in Sarah, who with Abraham produced a son in their old age. In verses 17 to 19, we say the same same theme of dependence upon God, reliance upon him, in in what is seen as the, the greatest test of Abraham's life. Because in Genesis 22, the Lord comes to him and tells him to take his son Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And Abraham obeyed. He took Isaac and he went off to offer him as a sacrifice. Now, Kierkegaard says, here you see the paradox of faith. Because on one hand, for him to obey God, he has to break the ethical commandment of God. He has to do something dastardly and wicked to to kill his son. It's the paradox of faith. In obeying God, you have to do what is wrong. But I want to suggest to you that the text does not suggest that Abraham had this tension regarding the paradox of faith. What the text signals is not the paradox of faith so much as the power of faith. Because Abraham relied upon God. And the Bible says that Abraham believed that God, he concluded that God was able to raise up his son even from the dead, from which he had received him in a figurative sense. God was able to raise him from the dead. He had received him in a figurative sense, meaning that his deliverance, that Isaac's escape from death is a sense of a resurrection. The point I'm trying to make is this. Abraham relied upon God, upon God's promise. God had given him a son and said, I'm going to bless you through Isaac. And now the Lord seemed about to take away not only his past and taking him from his land, but now taking away his future. But he believed. He had never seen a resurrection. 
but he believed that even if he put his son to death, God would bring him back alive. He believed because he relied upon the promise of God. You need to know that these stories and examples of faith are not to provide us with a historical recollection or understanding of faith. Rather, these stories are there for us to imitate Abraham's faith. And the first thing we must know about the faith which God approves of is that it, is, it, it consists of an ethical component. That faith, biblically speaking, is not a mere state of the mind or disposition. But genuine faith exhibits itself in a life of obedience. God called Abraham to leave his country and his family structure and he obeyed. He obeyed not knowing where he was going. And God also calls us. Calls us to radical obedience. Calls us by the word and by the spirit to follow Christ. We are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And wherever there is genuine faith, it must reveal itself in obedience. To simply have a head knowledge, to simply have a faith that is cerebral, is not genuine biblical faith. To simply say, I believe in God, doesn't make you a Christian. In fact, it makes you just the same with the devil. Because the devil believed and trembled. Satan believes in God, but he's not a Christian, is he? The reason is because he does not obey. So that if there is genuine faith in God, we must be willing to obey the commandment of God. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. You and I are called to believe, but more importantly to obey. To go on to maturity, to pay careful attention to the word of God, to hold fast the confession of our faith, and to strive to enter into the promised rest. So genuine faith is ethical because it leads and produces a life of obedience. Not merely initial obedience, but continually a life of obedience, a life of persistent, unqualified obedience to Christ. So, I ask you the question is, do you truly believe? Because if you answer yes, you must also be obedient to the commandment of God. That there should be nothing in our lives left undone, commanded by God himself. Because faith produces obedience. But genuine faith not only results in obedience, genuine faith is not only ethical, it is eschatological. That it is looking forward Abraham was looking forward to a city that had foundation, whose maker and builder is God. In a sense, Abraham stands as the contrast of the people of Babel. Because the people of Babel sought to construct a permanent city. When they were told to scatter, to multiply, and to cover the world, they wanted to build themselves a city. A place of permanence. They want to be a tower up to heaven itself. But Abraham stands as a contrary to these people. 
In fact, Abraham comes from the same region of Babel. Because Babel and Ur were in Mesopotamia. God called a man from the same region to inhabit a city, not a city built by men, not built by human hands, but a city built by God. And he lived with one view before him. He lived knowing that this world is not his home, that there is a more glorious home, the presence of God, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He was looking and longing for a city that has foundation. It's very tempting to live in this world, to pass these mega structures that we see, these giant skyscrapers around us, to see the solid CN Tower and the sprawling moors and think that security truly is in the things of this world. But these things one day will be burnt up with fire. This world will be shaken. It is not what we see that is permanent, but what that is to come. And he came to realize this thing, that indeed true permanence and true security lies in the world to come. He was looking, and all God's people must also look forward to the next world. In fact, Paul tells this to us in Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared unto all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearance of our Lord, our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are looking for the new heavens and the new earth that we see in Revelation 21. We are looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. And anyone who looks ahead by faith must be prepared in this world for the life to come. We must set our affections on things above and not on things of the earth. You see, faith looks ahead. We must never become so tied up that we are part of the value system and the practices of this world. We must be people who belong to the city of God. Augustine, the great church father, said there are two cities. There is indeed the city of God and the city of man. The city of man is controlled and ruled by the devil and by the lust of the flesh. And there's a city of God that is glorious, that is coming, that is eschatological. And the question is, to which city do you belong? Do you belong to the city of man or to the city of God? Because depending on where you stand, depending on where your citizenship lies, will depend on how you live. May God help us that we recognize that there is indeed a brighter day ahead a glorious city coming, and that we live loosely to this world because that which is permanent is yet to come. But third, my friend, the faith which, of which God approves. Not only is it ethical that it leads to obedience, not only is it eschatological because it looks forward to the true and unshakable city. This faith is theological. It is faith in God. You see, faith is only as good as its object. Donald Campbell was a British car racer and boat racer who won many competitions and broke many records. And one day he was in Scotland in the lake racing his boat against other boats. And there was an explosion on Campbell's boat and the boat sank immediately. 
And the only thing that floated to the top was a stuffed toy. It was his lucky charm, that which he looked to and trusted to keep him safe. My friends, how sad is it that in the most critical moment of his life, this stuffed toy could not save him. You see, faith is only as good as its object. And the reason that our faith is secure, it is because it is anchored in Jesus Christ. It is a faith in the living God. It is a faith in the God who is impermanent, the God who, the God who lives forever, the God who is unchanging. It is a faith in the living God, the powerful God. And that is the God that Abraham trusted. You see, faith involves this notion of fiducia, of dependence, of reliance. It's a faith that is active. Faith for the writer of Hebrews is not something that we store up inside of ourselves. It's something we exercise. Abraham believed and obeyed. He believed and trusted and he dwelt. He believed and he offered his son. And you and I are called to exercise faith in God in the crucial moments of life. In every situation we are called to trust. I know that philosophers have wrestled with why faith is viewed as a virtue. Why is faith a virtue? And it, the answer lies partly in this reality. That faith is tied to humility. The reason we rely upon God is because we come to recognize that we are not the source of our existence. We do not live by our power. We don't live by our strength. We live by the Lord's strength, for we live and move in Him. And when faith comes to realize our impotency and God's potency, that is when faith is exercised. That pleases God, and God is not ashamed to own us as his children because we believe in him. You and I need then in life to rely on God. The message of Hebrews to the generation in the first century was simply that to go through life, their faith had to be an obedient faith. Their faith had to be a forward-looking faith, but their faith had to be a trusting, relying faith. And you and I are called upon, if we are to live today, if we are to see any movement, to trust in God. We are to trust in the new covenant and the blessing of forgiveness of sins. We are to take God's promises as promises given to us. That one day we will inhabit heaven. We must trust in God who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We must trust in God because we believe that God is faithful, that he will not break his word. And we must trust in God when every situation seems contrary. When everything around you says, do not believe, faith says, I will believe. When everything around you tells you, faith, this is impossible, faith says, with God, there is nothing too hard. There is nothing impossible for God. When you are, you are told it can never happen, faith says God has power to raise the dead. That's the kind of faith. A faith that does not depend upon sight. 
A faith that does not need to understand but trust in God who knows and has all things at his disposal. That's the faith you and I need. A faith that will trust in God. A faith that will hang on to God. The Bible says that contrary to hope, Abraham against hope believed. When everything told Abraham stop believing, he kept on. Because he believed in God who has the power to even raise the dead. The God you serve, the God who is able to help you, is so powerful that he's able to even bring back the dead to life. Can you trust this God? I say yes, you can. But know, my friends, that faith in God is always faith through Jesus Christ. It is faith that is dependent upon the finished work of God in Jesus Christ. It is because of what Christ has done. It is because of having died for our sins and raised for our justification that we can trust in God that all he promises will be ours. May God grant you then a faith that obeys, a faith that looks forward to the life to come and a faith that relies simply and implicitly upon Jesus Christ and upon God and his promises for his sake. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we will say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, and give us, Lord, this reliance upon you, and grant, Lord, that we might trust in your goodness and in your greatness, that we may trust in your power to do the impossible. There are many things in our lives that are broken down, many things beyond our power, our ability to live pleasing, our ability to persevere to the end, our ability to live holy and upright and godly lives. Lord, these things are non-existent. We have not the power, but our faith is in you. We have before us, Lord, insurmountable mountains, but for you they are molehills, and so we will trust you. We will trust you for our health and for our finances and for our families. We will trust you for our salvation. We will trust you with our own lives. For we know whom we have believed that he's able to keep that which we have committed unto him even unto that day. So help us, Lord, to be a faithful people and a trusting people for Jesus' sake. Amen.